Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Boy, we have a jam-packed program for you today. Congressman Mark Pocan will be with us in the Congressional Progressive Caucus. We'll get to that. Evan Greer is on about California. Passed a net neutrality law, and the courts so far have held it up. A big win there. So that's our day. Let's start out with Congressman Mark Pocan. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin, is a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a member and former co-chair. He's, uh, his website is pocan.house.gov. His Twitter handle is RepMarkPocan. And uh, Representative Pocan, welcome back. So glad to have you here. And uh, I'm wondering what's at the top of your list? What's on your mind today? Well, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. We're just moving ahead with our priority legislation in a very quick pace. So it's good. But I think, you know, everyone should be watching the COVID bill, you know, things like making sure that we're providing enough unemployment, enough in our survival checks. Uh, All of those things are concerns that we're watching very closely. It seems to me like the one thing that would prevent anything from moving forward uh, outside of, you know, one or two bills that might be passed by reconciliation, but there's a, a ceiling of one to two a year, would be ending the filibuster. What are your thoughts on the probability of that happening? Uh, you know, unfortunately, the 50-50 Senate, everything is difficult. And uh, with, you know, Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema and a few others, you know, it, it's, it's questionable whether or not they'll move forward. Now, hopefully, on something like H.R. 1, if it gets blocked, and I think there's strong support for the most comprehensive campaign finance election and ethics reform bill ever introduced in Congress, that maybe that could help us to break the filibuster when some of those Democrats can see how the Republicans are willing to manipulate democracy just to uh, be able to stop things from happening. But, you know, I, I, I've learned to be cautious uh, as I watch the Senate, especially, you know, our big concern is on the minimum wage bill um, you know, the minimum wage attachment to uh, the COVID bill. Clearly, it's COVID-related. People who are the hardest uh, off economically are hit the hardest by COVID right now. Um, but, you know, we've got some senators who make 174000 and who are probably worth millions who think differently. And, uh, you know, that's one of the problems we're facing. Yeah, amen. Well, let's pick up some phone calls here. Uh, sure. Brett in Austin, Texas, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, Congressman, uh, I know you have a uh, uh, constitutional amendment you're proposing for uh, the right to vote. And I was wondering if I could get you to make a slight change in the wording. In 08, I proposed this to Janice Kucinich, and uh, unfortunately he didn't do it. But I would word it this way, that... All U.S. citizens of legal voting age as established by Congress have an unalienable right to vote in all elections and have that vote fairly, accurately, and securely counted. Your comments. Yeah, Brett, I I understand the gist of what you're saying. I do think, though, the current language will cover that. We worked very closely with groups like the Brennan Center that are the experts nationally on voting rights with crafting that amendment. Um, The whole idea is if there is actually an explicit right to vote in the Constitution, 
that uh, any state that tries to do something to in- inhibit someone's ability to vote, their right, their constitutional right to vote with the amendment that we have proposed, they would have to prove that they're not harming someone as opposed to right now you have to prove that you've been harmed. Uh, so the burden is really on the individual rather than on the state that's trying to do it. That amendment would take care of that. So I think to the, the gist of what you're trying to accomplish would be accomplished by the language. Again, we worked with experts on this. This isn't my language. This is um, you know experts uh, telling us what language is the best language to move forward with. But I certainly understand what you're saying because we want to make sure that uh, if you have a constitutional right to vote, it actually means just that, that uh, you should be able to vote and have your vote counted no matter what. And I think that would be accomplished based on the language we have. Ken in Lafayette, Colorado, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Thanks for taking my call, Tom. And yes, uh, Mr. Pocan, my question is in regards to, I guess, for reforming, if you will, reforming the military, the police, and even congressmen. And I say this with the appointment of Lloyd Austin as the um, Secretary of Defense by President Biden, which I think was a great move. But one of his first things he did, I think he called it a stand down of of military to to weed out anybody that was involved in the riots on on January 6th. So my question is, is going forward with that in mind, any plans, any committees put together to continue looking at the military and law enforcement to weed out the white supremacists that have infiltrated the system. Thank you. Sure. Uh, Thank you, Ken. And I think, as you mentioned, I mean, the secretary already said, you know, that's part of what he was looking at. I think under a different administration than we had for the last four years, clearly that will be a priority. And I think that's going to happen. One of my big concerns and Barbara Lee's big concerns, and we just recently formed a a Pentagon um, spending reduction caucus, is that we're trying to get a handle on the Department of Defense, period, right? Get a get a grip on what the Pentagon's doing, have some responsible auditing and, and some uh, cuts on what we're spending and redirection uh, of national defense. Um, but I, I certainly think uh, what you're asking for is already in process. I would like to see us go far farther in doing things like uh, not going along with what Donald Trump started around nuclear weapon modernization, because that's a a huge boondoggle on many fronts. I'd like to see us look at the OCO account, the Overseas Contingency account, and put it under the defense uh, budget as opposed to outside of it, because that would help. That would be alone a 10 percent reduction in in Pentagon spending. And uh, let's, you know, right size the private contractors and other things. I know that goes a little beyond what you asked for, Ken, but this is one of my priorities this Congress. Now that the sequester is done, we have an ability to try to cut Pentagon on spending. And I think, uh, you know, working with this administration and this new secretary, we're hoping to get that done as well. Reagan really championed the, uh, brought back Warren Harding's idea that Harding's campaign slogan was less government in business, more business in government. In other words, deregulate and privatize. And Reagan went on a privatization binge. Any chance we can reverse that? I mean, half our military budget is not going to the actual military. It's going to private corporations, if my recollection is we know you're right, and and we know that that is much more expensive than with military personnel, and in some areas that we probably don't need to. So there's a lot of I think possibilities, Tom. We Barbara Lee and I have been in talks with all the major groups, and we're working on a really good list to put forward this year to try to look for uh, having reductions and right sizing. I wonder if uh, characterizing privatization as fraud and waste would be useful. You think? You know, just cost effectiveness. I mean, using our military personnel is a much better way to go than having contracted out. Amen. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Pocan.house.gov is his website. You can tweet him at rep, R-E-P, rep, Mark Pocan. John in Los Angeles. Hey, John, thanks for listening to KPFK. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, Freedom Fighters. Uh, my question is, you have pretty much you have traitors in the Senate that, you know, support Confederate statues. And, you know, they're allowed to vote when they're complicit in the Capitol Hill assault. And you got to start showing their egregious lies like Lindsey Graham getting a my dad was fighting Nazis. And a B-17, he got a bomb that blew up next to his bubble. He got the same medal that Lindsey Graham got for, for doing a Bob Hope photo op. So you got to start exposing these people for what they are. 
John, I, I agree, and I think the Senate's been doing that, especially with Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. I think my senator, unfortunately, from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, has decided to not just drink the Kool-Aid, but bathe in the Kool-Aid of craziness lately. I think he proposed that there were provocateurs and that people were very friendly who were part of the mobs that tried to do sedition on It was January a festive 6th. atmosphere. And, yeah, festive <laughs> atmosphere, right? I mean, Ron Johnson is so embarrassing. I mean, we're the state that brought Robert LaFollette, I think the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, U.S. senator in American history, and then Joe McCarthy. And apparently Ron Johnson decided we have to go lower than Joe, uh, which is why he's acting the way he is. But there's a number of senators doing this right now, and I think, uh, you know, calling them out more aggressively, we do have to hold those accountable still from January 6th. And Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, Cancun Cruz, are certainly part of people who need to be held accountable, as well as, I think, Lindsey Graham and a few others. Pat in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Thank you for taking my call. I have a question about HR1, and my question mm-hmm. is this. How will the HR1 not be knocked down by the Supreme Court? How does the HR, let me, and I'm going to phrase it this way, how does HR1 deal with the issue of preclearance, which I've been reading about, which basically the preclearance clauses a kind of what gave the Supreme Court, allowed them to dismantle the Voting Rights Act of 65. So how will H.R. 1 not get, you know, how will it work? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we've been told by the folks that we worked in crafting this, I and mean, clearly we wouldn't have crafted a bill like this if we thought there was going to be an obstacle there. So we don't believe there is an obstacle. And I think you know, uh, right now, and Tom has been very gracious in sharing me many of the emails from some of the groups out there that are trying to act as if this is some kind of a gag bill and everything else. And you're, they're going to put all sorts of misinformation out because this is a strong bill to stop the, un, the, the undue influence that special interests have in Washington, D.C. It also helps us on elections and ethics and other things. And because of that, they're going to put a lot of money and effort into trying to, to screw this up. And uh, I think, again, the way it's drafted, we're going to be fine moving forward. Uh, but I think you're going to see a lot of issues put up against it. And I notice what they're starting to do is they put issues they think they can appeal to folks on the left. So I think one thing, Pat, to look for is where some of those sources might be. We're seeing this right now with the Equality Act and talking about, you know, people pretending to be women to compete in women's sports to win. I mean, crazy arguments, but I've got some folks on the left kind of listening to them because the way they package them. I think we got to watch what they put forward on issues like HR1 as well. Maybe we should call it the Gag the Billionaires Act. <laughs> That's what <laughs> they steal their language. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls, pocan.house.gov, rep Mark Pocan over on Twitter, and Eric in Pasadena, California. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, I just want to ask a question. I know you guys are having this big fight over minimum wage, $15 an hour, and I support that. But in the event you can't get that through the parliamentarian, why don't you guys ever consider using minimum wage as a function of government like per diem? You know, for those who don't know, when you work for the government and you travel, let's say you stay at a hotel. Well, obviously, hotels in New York are more expensive than Tulsa, Oklahoma. So you get a certain amount to spend by zip code. Why wouldn't you do something like that with minimum wage, say the, say the lodging per diem time .065 or $10, whichever is higher? Why wouldn't you do something like that? Yeah, Eric, I think trying to do a whole new system when you have a minimum wage system currently in place would be much more difficult than just changing the wage of the minimum wage. Um, Therefore, I think, you know, trying to recreate something that would have uh, all the impacts that you're talking about in different parts of the country would be very difficult to start from scratch, where we haven't had an increase in 11 years on the minimum wage. We know you can't live on $15,000 a year, uh, yet Congress has not been able to act. That's why it's really important to have something automatically that keeps it adjusted to inflation, uh, which is a very important part of the bill, and addresses the tipped wage, which is, what, $2 and change, which is unbelievable that we still have something like that in place. The good news is I saw there are some actually words from Byrd himself about the minimum wage. So hopefully that will help us as we're moving forward. 
It's also kind of apples and oranges, isn't it? I mean, the minimum wage is an absolute floor through which people can't fall, whereas the per diem, the IRS per diems, are intended to provide reasonable compensation or reasonable deductions based on local costs. It's kind of completely different things, it seems. Well, and there's some who are trying to say we should have regional minimum wage. But again, like as you mentioned, it's the floor. 15000 you can't live on anywhere. There's not that much of a difference in cost of living. And in higher cost of living places, the wage will automatically go up by most employers. Don't forget, 90% of the employers, even according to the CBO report, will be at the $15 wage when we get to the $15 wage. This is bringing the laggards, the people who are really abusing human labor more than anything else. So it is a very different scenario. Jessica in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, gentlemen. Joy is guilty of federal crimes. He destroyed several thousand dollars worth of postal equipment. And what right does DeJoy have right now to tell us he's going to raise the postal rates? He is just twinking all of us that he's still in that position. And my last thing, the insurrection, it was the Flynn brothers, the Flynn brothers that are the ones that um, held back any response to the insurrection. He had his brother in there, and Flynn is guilty of, I saw it online, he had a tape to draw people there, and I I had even sent that on to Jamie Raskin. It was a tape to indoctrinate people, be a part of history, and it had flashing lights, and it said, come, and the two Flynns are responsible. And thank you, thank you, gentlemen. You do a wonderful job, both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Jessica. Well, thank you, Jessica. And, uh, you know, to the your point on DeJoy, I, there's no question this is something that Democrats on the Hill are uh, very strongly advocating for even replacing the entire Board of Governors, um, and because clearly it's the Board of Governors that has the ability to hire and fire DeJoy, and there's no reason he should still be in office. But don't forget, Joe Biden has been in office for a drop over one month. Uh, he's already done a lot of things. There's going to do a lot more. And this is one I don't think there's any reason to think that uh, the right thing isn't going to be happening when it comes to the Postal Service. However, I will add that we need to do some things legislatively, like get rid of this ridiculous pre-funding of employee benefits 75 years into the future. No other agency, no other business does anything like this. And this provision is what's really, in many ways, harming the Postal Service more than almost anything. I, I agree. DeJoy has done many terrible things. But in the long term, that's a provision that Congress needs to deal with. Lynn in St. Charles, Illinois. You're on the air with Representative Pocan. Hello, gentlemen. Uh, my call is concerning the hearings that are going on about the January 6th insurrection. I personally would like to see the officials being questioned to give very specific details and compare and contrast the response that was given, the intelligence that was gathered, the threat was, that was assessed, the degree of the response that was given and so forth. Compare and contrast the January 6th response to that of the photo op that was given for President Trump at the church with where he held the Bible upside down. And secondly, what I would like to say is that the witnesses, when they go up to testify, they have to swear that they're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. However, the senators, representatives, or whoever, are not given that same oath, and so they're apparently free to go ahead and just spew out lies during these hearings. And I was wondering if there could be some sort of reconciliation with that. Thank you. Yeah, Lynn, I wouldn't point. Put, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Lynn, I wouldn't put my hopes in the hearings, but I would put my hopes in what Nancy Pelosi is creating which is a special committee that's going to look at what happened on January 6th. And there, we really can get to the bottom of what happened. Because right now in the hearing, you are seeing finger pointing this agency, pointing at that agency. And and where's the truth in that? You can't get it out of the questions, especially when you have people like Ron Johnson blaming the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot, you know, or whatever else is currently in his head on any given day. So that's where we have to be really supporting what Nancy's doing, because that will be a thorough review. And at the end of this, we really will have the information that you and I, and I think, you know, the American people deserve and are asking for out of this. So uh, I'm not going to count on the hearings to change that. I'm not going to count on, you know, senators to suddenly develop consciences or brains, but I am going to hope that what Nancy's doing will help us get to the bottom of this. And I'm really looking forward to that. Brenda in Copperas Cove, Texas. Hey, Brenda, you're on here with Congressman Pocan. 
Thank you for taking my call, Tom. Tomorrow is my birthday. Representative Pocan, I'm very concerned about the voting restrictions that are being formatted in, I guess, Georgia and Arizona. And doesn't this boil down to taxation without representation? If these people are paying taxes, shouldn't they be allowed to vote to choose their representative? What do you think? Brenda, I completely agree. And, and by the way, throw in Wisconsin. They just introduced uh, some of these. And any state with a Republican legislature, you know, this is their way now of trying to win elections. They can't win the popular vote for president. So now they're going to win it by, again, uh, further making uh, who can vote a, a smaller and smaller group of people that they largely pick. So we do have to fight these everywhere. That's why H.R. 1 is so important nationally and other voting rights laws changes that we're going to pass in the House, hopefully get through the Senate and have signed by Joe Biden. But we're going to have to watch this. You know, they have to cheat to win is what they've decided. That's why they're doing these laws in states and we can't let them. So speak out in your state if it's occurring. And uh, just, you know, bills got introduced in Wisconsin doing the same sort of thing. Sean in Davenport, Iowa. You're on the air with Rep. Pocan. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Um, uh, Representative Pocan, is there an actual bill that will come to a floor vote for any type of health care relief for all U.S. citizens in this country? At this point, we're struggling. We have a lot of medical debts with COVID. Why not the opportune time to pass single-payer, public option, Medicare for all. It comes up every election season, and then it's a do nothing about it. So go ahead and answer, and I will get off the air so you can respond. I appreciate the phone call. Thank you. Sure. Let me answer it specifically and generally. Specifically, not that many bills have been reintroduced this session because we're you know not that long into the session. So I don't know if there's something already introduced, but I'm sure there will be. I know Medicare for All is coming back. I know that Joe Biden has said he wants to lower the age uh, of access to Medicare and he wants to support the public option. I know that in our bill right now moving forward, we uh, have a number of health care measures, including uh, the Affordable Care Act period to, to be able to opt in, making sure that that's open for longer. I think that's something Joe Biden's already done. So there will be, I'm quite sure, measures before Congress. Will they go as far as you and I may want? That may be the actual question. I don't think you'll ever see Medicare for All uh, get on the floor until we build the proper support. And, you know, this is one where I know a lot of people wanted us to try to do a vote just for the sake of a vote. But the reason you don't see that happen is that actually works against passing something. So what we need to do is continue to build sponsors of that bill and build the case for that bill. And in the meantime, make sure that what Joe Biden said he was going to do actually does get to the floor around public option and lowering the age to for Medicare access. That is something that as a grassroots, we're going to have to work on. So I hope, I certainly hope something will make it to the floor in the House, whether or not it's been introduced yet. I don't know if that'll matter as much, but it should be introduced and we should have something going forward. Uh, Congressman, just uh, 10 seconds. What should we be looking for this week? What we send to the Senate, making sure the Senate doesn't weaken it. Amen. Congressman Mark Pocan, thanks so much for being with us again. Absolutely, Tom. Thank you so much. Take care. Always great having you. Thank you so much. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. A whole bunch of other stuff in the news. Right now, Christopher Wray is testifying before, before uh, the Senate. And yeah, I watched it for about an hour. It's getting quite repetitive, which is the reason why we're not carrying it live right now. Basically, you had senators like Ted Cruz going, well, you know, there were 14,000 black people who were arrested in these uh, Black Lives Matter protests throughout 2020, and you've only arrested 300 people in the, in the Capitol. Uh, seems like we got a bigger problem with all these black people and Black Lives Matter people and Antifa people in America. You know, and you had more than 700 police officers who were injured during all those riots all across America. I mean, you know, it's basically the Fox News story. Right. And the majority of the arrests that happened during the Black Lives Matter protests following George Floyd's murder were not people being arrested for riot. They were not people being arrested for trying to bring down the government. They were not people being arrested for trying to to beat on police officers. Mostly it was people who got kettled. They were arrested for trespassing. They were arrested for being, you know, uh, in, in the streets and blocking traffic. Um, you know, they were mostly nuisance arrests of the police officers who were injured. Uh, many of them, I, I don't have the specific statistics in front of me right now, but many of them were, were injured by their own stuff, by their own tear gas and things like that. Yes, there are some folks on the left who believe that bringing down the whole system is the best way to bring about institutional change in America. To paraphrase... Dwight Eisenhower, their number is small and they are stupid, but they are by and large, and, and I knew folks like this. In fact, I was on the edge of folks like this back in the 60s. They, they created the Weather Underground and ran around and blew up buildings. Look at, you know, look at the wonderful results it produced, right? Nixon's law and order. You know, yeah, that's there, but it's pretty inconsequential. And most of it boils down to tagging buildings and, and smashing windows. And even that is really, really limited. I mean, we're, we're basically, we've got a couple of square blocks of Portland where this happened and, and a few square blocks of Seattle. And, and Fox News has tried to turn this into a, a nationwide massive uprising by uh, Antifa and, and Black Lives Matter folks with the emphasis on the word black. And so that was what we were hearing from the Republican senators today. They kept getting, trying to get Chris Ray to say this, and he kept saying, well, you know, we're not seeing... And so, you know, finally Chris Coons came, came along, and this was maybe 10 minutes ago, and said, let's just be clear. You know, have you, have, you know, in the January 6th attack on the Capitol, which is the focus of this hearing, were there any Black Lives Matter people? No. Any Antifa people? No. Any of them involved in the planning? No. Who was it? Well, it was mostly white supremacists and the so-called militia movement who are anti-government. So, anyhow, I just, I just gave you the, uh, <laughs> the essence of, of what's going on. And, and, and as I said, the reason why we're not carrying it live, because it, is, it, is getting, it has gotten you know, very, very repetitious. Well, and, and Chris Ray isn't the guy I want to hear from. The guy I want to hear from is Chris Miller. I want to hear from the acting Secretary of Defense who issued the stand-down order on January 5th saying to the National Guard in D.C., you may not show up. And if you do show up, you may not arrest people, you may not use tear gas, you may not share your equipment with the Capitol Police, and you may not do basically anything to stop that crowd until you hear from me. And then repeatedly during a six-hour period, there were, there were multiple attempts by members of Congress and others to reach the, Secretary, the acting Secretary of Defense, Chris Miller, and say, please, release the National Guard. Put a stop to this. And he kept going, well, I don't really, call me back in an hour. Let's talk. And, you know, what's fairly clear to me is that what was going on was that Donald Trump engineered this thing, that the conspiracy meeting that he had, that they had with Tommy Tuberville and Don Jr. and all these, uh, all these guys at the Trump Hotel the night before on January 5th played a role in it. And I want to get right to that stuff. You know, this, uh, you know, let's have the FBI director come in and recite statistics to us. Come on, let's, let's cut to the chase. Okay, number one. In fact, Tucker Carlson told his audience, this was uh, night before last, the attack did not constitute an armed insurrection, and he accused Democrats of relentless and coordinated campaigns to misrepresent 
that uh, January 6th riot. And of course, you all saw Ron Johnson, you know, trying to, he's just lying through his teeth about it. The For the People Act is being amended right now in the House. In all probability, they will have a vote on it tomorrow. Amendment 84 require, uh, restores voting rights to people with felony convictions nationwide. Amendment 157 includes early voting locations on college campuses. Amendment 26 blocks the Postal Service from any changes that slow delivery of ballots 120 days before elections. And Amendment 22 lowers the voting age to 16. So that debate is going on right now in the House. I think that's frankly more consequential. The Tom Hartman program. And meanwhile, we discover that the attorney, uh, the Republican Attorney General's Association was up to its eyeballs in getting ready for January 6th. Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, just to restate something that I just kind of brushed over just before the break, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here. H.R. 1, it's called the For the People Act. I got another email this morning from one of the right-wing groups that the uh, Koch Network funds calling it the gag act, right? Because it's going to require that when billionaires pour money into politicians, down poor politicians' throats, uh, that they be identified. Oh my God. We might, we might find out which billionaires are giving how much money to which politicians. Uh, that, would be a, that, that would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? I mean, that's just really gagging the right of free speech. Um, but anyhow, it is being debated right now in the House of Representatives. This is a big deal, and it's important to call your member of the House of Representatives right now and the Senate, frankly. You have two senators and one member of the House, and let them know that H.R. 1, the For the People Act, is a high priority to you, if it is. It is a very high priority for me because this is basically the, 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 the reinvention well, it's not specifically the reinvention of the Voting Rights Act. There's another piece of legislation that does a lot of that. But what it does is it, it clarifies, expands, and regularizes voting processes across the United States in ways that will basically make it easier to vote and keep it quite hard to vote in a way that is fraudulent. Nobody wants fraudulent voting. Nobody wants so-called voter fraud. Democrats don't want it. You know, the majority of it that was that was identified, for example, in Pennsylvania, uh, the attorney general of Pennsylvania found four people who were dead, who were voted, whose ballots were voted by their dead, by their living relatives, four of them. Three of those four cast votes for Donald Trump. So the majority of the voter fraud we know in this country and the one the one instance of actual ballot harvesting that we've seen where somebody went around from home to home and bought people's unfilled out ballots and then filled them out for a particular candidate and submitted them. That one instance in either North or South Carolina, pretty sure it was North Carolina. That was somebody acting on behalf of a Republican congressional candidate. So the vast majority of so-called voter fraud that happens in the United States happens by and on behalf of Republican candidates. So, you know, I don't want this going on. You don't want this going on. And the Republicans, of course, have been squealing about this since 1980 as an excuse to try to shut down voting, dial back on the number of polling places and things like that in pre predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhoods. But this H.R. 1, the For the People Act, it, uh, it reduces the ability of individual state legislatures to engage in voter suppression. It does away largely or dials back substantially partisan gerrymandering where you've got a situation where more than half of all the people who voted for a member of the House of Representatives in Wisconsin, for example, or in Pennsylvania, for example, voted for a Democrat. Yet both those states sent a majority of members of, uh, to Congress of Republicans. Why? Because of gerrymandering. It, it, uh, it promotes transparency around money and politics. It defines more clearly exactly what political corruption is and criminalizes it. And of course, all these are the reasons why the Koch Network and other right-wing billionaires and groups like FreedomWorks are just hysterical about it and are calling it the Gag Act. And they just sent out a massive mailing this morning asking everybody to please call your member of Congress and tell them to stop the Gag Act, HR1, in its tracks. Well. You need to be calling your member of Congress and saying, we would like H.R. 1 very much. Thank you, please. 
Uh, and that number is 202-224-3121 to call Congress, 202-224-3121. And as if to highlight the importance of this, this is the latest, right? This is from uh, a piece over on Alternate by Igor Darish. At least 253 bills with provisions restricting voting access have been introduced, pre-filed, or carried over in 43 states, mostly by Republicans, according to the Brennan Center. They, the Brennan Center notes that this is in response to, quote, a rash of baseless and racist allegations of voter fraud and election irregularities that former President Trump and his Republican allies promoted for months without any evidence. Mark Elias, who is uh, one of the Democratic attorneys uh, working on this, he's also the co-founder of Democracy Docket, one of the uh, pro-voting rights uh, Democratic groups, says, we're about to be hit with a tidal wave of voter suppression legislation by Republican legislatures across the country. Uh, We will see, as a result of that, a, quote, contraction of voting rights like we have not seen in recent memory. And this week, of course, the Supreme Court is hearing another case where Republicans in Arizona want to dial back on the rights of people to vote in Arizona, make it harder and harder to vote in Arizona. And we will find out exactly how partisan the six conservatives on the court are. Historically, they have voted along virtually entirely partisan lines. And I'm expecting that, you know, that's going to continue. I mentioned the, return, the Republican Attorneys General Association, uh, the Republican Attorney, the RAGA, Republican Attorneys General Association. Turns out that uh, they, in, in addition to uh, a group, the, the Rule of Law Defense Fund, that they are, that is a subsidiary of uh, RAGA, the Republican Attorney General's Association, did a, ro- a January 5th robocall to right wingers on their list, encouraging people to show up at the Capitol on January 6th. They also held a secret war games event back in September to plan for what they were going to do, what Republican attorneys general were going to do if Trump lost the election on November 3rd. There were 44 senior attorneys general staff present, 32 in person and 12 virtually. They held 30 meetings for state attorney general senior staff between July of 2020 and mid-January of 2021, including one on January 5th, the day before the, the riots in the Capitol. 19 corporations paid for special access to Republican attorneys general and their staffs. Raga's vice president, Mr. Schmidt, called that, quote, the business of making friends. Right. Elad Gross, who's a uh, St. Louis attorney who found out much of this stuff with the Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, said, quote, most states, if not all, have laws prohibiting the use of state employees for political purposes. It was incredible to see the degree to which they have been involved with the RAGA and its subsidiary. We found that a political dark money organization was coordinating with state officials and their staffs all across the country for many months prior to the January 6th Stop the Steal event. They continued to meet after the election right up through January 5th. And then he adds, probably the most amazing thing to me is how they were selling access to large campaign donors, giving $50,000 in many cases. Those donations were getting them official access, not only to attorneys general, Republican attorneys general, but also to their senior staffs. And then, for example, the Attorney General of Florida, Ashley Moody, has touted in her online biography her role on the board of directors of a conservative group that's been criticized for its role in the insurrection in Washington, D.C., according to the, the Tampa Bay Times. Her official website for the Florida Attorney General details her role as, quote, recognized as a national leader among Republicans with the Rule of Law Defense Fund. That's the group that did the robocalls on January 5th saying, show up tomorrow in D.C. This is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. Paula in Miami, Florida. Hey, Paula, what's up? Hi, Tom. You were talking about the new voter restriction laws. Well, I was watching MSNBC Sunday, and I think it was Arizona, they put the list of all the changes they're making to the voter laws, and the last line on the list said they have the right to overturn the results of the election. So they're pretty much saying if we lose again, we have the right to 
to pick who we want to win. That's correct. But that's going to fly? I mean, I don't get that. I think that's entirely possible that that's going to fly in Arizona. I mean, you've got some, you know, really crazy right-wingers who have control of the legislature of that state. If and it's not just going to be Arizona. I know. If, if 31 states do that, why even have an election if, if they just exactly. kind of result? Exactly. What you have now in the modern Republican Party is a political party, and it's been this way for 40 years. It's just that, you know, for the last 35 years, they gave lip service to the idea of, of having, you know, elections and respecting what you might call democracy in a republic. But what you have now is a Republican Party that just doesn't give a rat's ass about democracy. In fact, they openly are disdainful of it. They are full-out advocates for an oligarchic form of modern fascism. And I just don't see how the Republican Party going forward can play any kind of constructive role in America as long as they're adhering to this kind of ideology. And frankly, I mean, they haven't played a constructive role going forward in America in my lifetime since 1961 when Dwight Eisenhower left. And even Eisenhower had his flaws, shall we say, but, you know, at least he was supportive of Social Security and unions and, and democracy, small d democracy. But I think the larger issue right now is that the Republican Party is no longer a legitimate political party in the sense that they want to have a discussion about actual policy. Let's see here, Michael in Los Angeles. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I suppose you heard Stevie Wonder's going, thinking of moving to Ghana. You heard that, right? No, I didn't hear that. Oh, well, it's been all over the news. Stevie Wonder saying he's going to move to Ghana. The whole thing with Oprah. Why do you think that's so? I have no idea. I, like I said, I have not read the story. I don't know anything about it. Okay, but, well, so. injustice. I mean, obviously, Stevie Wonder's been, you know, doing a lot of things for blacks in this country through his music and activism, and now he's had enough. Okay, I'm on the left. You said earlier... I don't know where you get off dissing the Weather Underground and people who want to change the whole system, okay? What has the Democratic Party done? What has capitalism done for blacks and the working class lately? You know, devastated us with climate change? You know, yeah. Michael, if you uh, want to tear down capitalism, inequality? what do you intend to replace it with? Something. This is not working. Yeah, something. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. If this is the level of dialogue, thanks, but no thanks. John in Los Angeles. Say, John, what's on your mind? Oh, how you doing today? Uh, thanks for being there. I just wanted to call you. I was watching the CNN and uh, Booze Cruise and uh, KKK Josh, and now Tom Cotton's up there. Booze crews and Holly were se seemingly to, like, trying to get information from the FBI, like, where you know where's how far has he got you know like like it's almost like they're trying to cover up for their own tracks like they want to know what information they extracted from the money trail and you know where you know can they provide that it's like they're acting as fbi agents and yeah you know, it's just belief and now tom cotton's up there he's he's talking about iran syria north korea I thought this was about the uh, storming of Capitol Hill, but I guess uh, we, we live in two different worlds. Yeah, yeah, that, that's why I, I've chosen not to carry this live, because it's, it's, uh, the Republicans are just throwing chaff into the wind here. And they're you know, just trying to obfuscate the whole thing. And the Democrats are asking fairly obvious questions that we already know the answer to. Yes, it was white supremacists. Yes, it was racists. Yes, it was pro-Trump people. No, it wasn't Antifa. No, it wasn't Black Lives Matter. Yes, they, they, they killed people. Yes, they, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's like, you know, uh, tell me something I don't know. And, you know, occasionally there are hearings where there are things that we don't know and we learn about them. And I do carry those live on this program right now. But uh, uh, you're right, Tom Cotton is, you know, uh, is there a significant gang threat? Uh, he's talking about the brutality and savagery that we saw with the Black Lives Matter groups. Really? Really? Yeah, John, thanks for the thanks for your comments. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Age of Eisenhower, America and the World of the 1950s by William I. Hitchcock. This is from chapter 19, page 475, about three quarters of the way through the book. Republicans of the 1950s knew how to sell a product. They pioneered the use of television advertising in politics, and at their national conventions in 1952 and 1956, they mobilized actors, dancers, acrobats, sports figures, crooners, jugglers, and sword swallowers to infuse their rather dull message of peace and prosperity with some pizzazz. In middle 1960, mid-July 1960, though, as the GOP faithful gathered in Chicago at the International Amphitheater, the same hall in which Ike and Dick had formed their political tandem eight years earlier, the convention planners were running out of ideas. A giant elephant named Koa, on loan from Louisiana, proved to be too big to amble down the aisles of the hall and had to be returned. The torchlight parade of 500 young Republicans had to be canceled due to the fire hazard of their kerosene-soaked rags. Plans to get Henry Fonda into costume as Abraham Lincoln, a role he had played woodenly in the 1939 film Young Mr. Lincoln, were scotched when Fonda turned out to be a Democrat. Half the hotel rooms in Chicago remained empty a few days before the convention. Besides an absence of hoopla, the top Republican leaders had serious worries. A Gallup poll on the eve of the convention showed that since 1952, the Republicans had lost support among business and professional voters, white-collar workers, and farmers, three key demographic groups. And they had made no inroads among skilled and unskilled laborers who favored the Democratic Party by a ratio of four to one. President Eisenhower's personal popularity had masked serious weaknesses in the Republican Party. As the Republicans gathered in Chicago, John Kennedy, a junior senator with little international name recognition, led Nixon in the polls by four points. And uh, I should add, Nixon was the vice president, uh, Eisenhower. The press corps, bored to tears by the lack of drama in Republican ranks, worked hard to breathe life into the candidacies of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller and Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, who might, they earnestly hope, challenge Nixon for the GOP nomination from the left and the right. The Washington Post editorial page noted that both parties inclined toward moderate nominees like Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and Nixon, but cautioned that, quote, an excess of moderation can yield a pudding devoid of flavor or shape, end quote, and hoped Goldwater would add a dash of, quote, pepper to the otherwise bland old party's Chicago solemnities, end quote. Indeed, old guard supporters of the dear departed Bob Taft now had a new champion in the ruggedly handsome conservative from the desert west. It was not to be. Goldwater did not seek the nomination and backed Nixon. Rockefeller, whom most veteran Republicans distrusted for his ideological elasticity and his vanity, pressured Nixon to adopt a number of Kennedy-like platform planks on issues such as defense spending, civil rights, health insurance, and housing. Nixon, terrified that a Rockefeller boomlet might snatch away his long-sought prize, caved into these demands before meeting with Rocky in New York on July 22nd three days before the convention opened. Rockefeller, in turn, threw his support to Nixon in a feeble gesture of party unity. In extracting concessions from Nixon on the GOP platform, though, Rockefeller managed to weaken Nixon's case that he and he alone had the toughness to confront Khrushchev on the world stage. 
The real challenge Nixon faced in taking the leadership of the Republican Party did not come from Goldwater or Rockefeller. It came from Eisenhower. Of course, Ike supported Nixon's presidential bid since Nixon offered the best hope of extending the Eisenhower legacy. But the distance between those two men, which had always been great, never seemed wider than in 1960. Eisenhower had become the world's most respected, most recognized, and most liked man. For all of his apparent political weaknesses and occasional lapses and his mishandling into the U-2 affair, he occupied an unassailable place in the pantheon of great figures of his time. His war service alone would have placed him on history's pedestal, but he followed that with eight years of dignified leadership of a country whose global power had reached unprecedented dimensions. When Eisenhower arrived in Chicago on July 26 to address the Republican convention, over one million Chicagoans lined the streets along his route to the Sheraton Blackstone Hotel. Shouts of joy rang through the miles of well-wishers. We like Ike signs dotted the scene along with hand-painted expressions of thanks to the old warrior. Confetti so dense that it stuck to Ike's moist and beaming face poured from the rooftops. Banners and flags draped every storefront and lampposts in a blaze of red, white, and blue. It was Ike the crowd wanted. A loudspeaker in a truck following the motorcade blared out a popular tune by the Four Knights. I love the sunshine of your smile. The president, visibly moved, told reporters outside the hotel, it's one of the finest crowds I've ever seen. On Tuesday evening, Senator Dirksen, a famously orotund speaker in a profession known for producing magnificent windbags, came to the podium in the amphitheater to introduce the president. Few recalled that eight years earlier, Dirksen had nominated Senator Taft. And yeah, the book is The Age of Eisenhower by Hitchcock. Welcome back to the Tom Harvin program. On the line with us, our old friend Evan Greer, Deputy Director of FightForTheFuture.org. Fight for the FTR is the Twitter handle for Evan. Evan, welcome back. Tell us about how California got net neutrality and what the fate of that legislation or that, well, that net neutrality is and, and, and in all probability will be. Yeah, sure thing, Tom. Great to be back on the program and always nice to be here when we can actually celebrate a victory for the public interest, which is what this court decision in California is. So to take viewers, listeners back, folks probably remember that the Trump administration's FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, cruelly and ridiculously repealed the net neutrality protections that millions of people from across the political spectrum fought for. These are the basic rules that prevent companies like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T from abusing their monopoly power to control what we can see and do on the Internet. After those rules were repealed at the federal level, many states sprang into action with California passing what is seen as the gold standard strongest net neutrality law in the country, SB 822. And it's worth noting that the cable companies spent more than $6 million lobbying against that legislation, and we beat them. A grassroots coalition of organizations uh, on California from across the country came together, fought for, and got that legislation overwhelmingly passed. So then the cable companies sent their lawyers in and filed a lawsuit trying to block the law from going into effect. The Trump administration's DOJ piled onto that lawsuit. With the new administration, the DOJ withdrew their support for that lawsuit. And just yesterday, a federal judge in California eviscerated the cable company's argument, basically saying, look, if the FCC says they don't have the authority to regulate broadband, then you can't prevent states from doing it, too. So this really paved the way not just for other states to follow in California's footsteps and put their own protections into place, um, but really changes the game at the federal level, makes it much more likely that we can get uh, strong net neutrality rules back in place for everybody in the country sometime in the next couple of years. Would that mean, well, first of all, is this the end of the road judicially? I mean, are they going to appeal this to the full federal appeals court? And then are they going to appeal to the Supreme Court? And then secondly, does this mean that California, with regard to broadband, can basically do the same thing they did with regard to tailpipe emissions back in the day, you know, establish the standard for the country? And it's just so much hassle for individual companies to have California users versus everybody else that they just it just becomes the de facto national standard. 
That's exactly right. So to answer your first question, no, it's not the end of the road. ISP lawyers get paid by the hour, so I'm sure they will be filing an appeal here. But the decision that came down strongly suggests that they are very unlikely to prevail. So I think that'll be largely an exercise in futility from the ISP's point. If they want to waste more of their money fighting us in court, they can go ahead. But it seems very likely that the the California law will be going into effect sometime in the near future. And to your point, California is an enormous state, uh, you know, uh, one of the largest economies in the world. And so having this law on the books in California will, I think, in the interim, become sort of a de facto protection for the nation, because, as you said, ISPs are unlikely to want to have to comply with this law in California and not do the same everywhere else. Um, But that said, I think, again, it's absolutely essential that the Biden administration appoints uh, someone to the FCC, someone who does not have ties to the telecom industry, as the last two chair people have, uh, and someone who's going to be a champion for the public interest so that we can get these rules back in place at the federal level to make sure that everyone is protected. Great news, Evan, which raises the question, what's next? What do people who might be listening or watching need to be doing moving forward to try to get uh, net neutrality? And what's the status of the FCC right now and the Biden administration's, you know, hopefully their attempts to replace Ajit Pai with somebody who's pro-net neutrality? Yeah, so there's been a number of news articles uh, in recent weeks that suggest that there are a few folks in the running for that final commissioner position at the FCC. And then once that position is filled, the administration can decide either to elevate Jessica Rosenworcel, who's the current acting chair, to become the chair or whoever this new person is. And so really, it's essential that everyone takes action, contacts the administration and specifically has this message. You know, we definitely want them to act quickly and prioritize this. Obviously, this administration has a lot of priorities, quite a bit on their plate dealing with the pandemic, et cetera. So I think it's really important that we make it clear that having a functioning FCC is essential for our pandemic response. This is the agency that is supposed to protect the public from telecom monopolies um, during a time when kids are going to school online, people are working from home. Um, the internet is critical infrastructure right now. We need a functioning FCC. Um, so you can go to battleforthenet.com. That's kind of our hub site where we always keep it up to date with whatever the latest, most important action you can take on net neutrality is. Um, we're going to be updating that in the next couple of days to specifically be calling on the administration to put someone in as the chair of the FCC who has no ties to the telecom industry and is going to fight for the public interest, fight to protect people's right to connect to a free and open internet affordably should be accessible to everyone. It's a basic human right. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Evan Greer. Uh, Evan, thanks so much for dropping by. Always great talking with you. Anytime, Tom. Always good to catch up. Take care. Thank you. Back at you. Yep. James in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Do you really think the 16-year-old voting bill has much of a chance? No. I think that the odds are that that amendment will be shot down. You know, I think that what they're going to try to do with this, uh, with H.R. 1, is, uh, you know, pass things that are, at least among Democrats, uncontroversial. And 16-year-old year, uh, voting is, is still controversial. Well, I, I, can't, I can see the argument for it. But I guess oh, I can build a strong argument for it. Are. These these are the these are the people who are going to inherit the future of our country. The argument against it is that most sixteen-year-olds are still living with their parents and are probably heavily influenced by their parents' political views. But you know, hey, you could say that about spouses. You know, I'm influenced by Louise. She's influenced by me. I mean, you know, but you know, there's got to be. Uh, some reasonable cut off it and uh, and and by and large we consider 18 to be the age of majority you know it's the age at which you can get married it's the age that you can drink it's the age that you can vote in most states <laughs> and so i i don't think the six i that was just one of a long list there's actually probably going to be uh, over 100 amendments proposed and uh, i you know i'm pretty sure that's not going to be one of them that's going to get in there uh, well, I, I love, uh, at least I love that they're uh, thinking about it. But yeah, I also, uh, if Arizona 60, By the way, there are places where 16-year-olds can vote. There are municipalities. I don't believe that there's any states yet that, that uh, allow 16-year-olds to vote in statewide elections. But there are towns that allow 16-year-olds to vote. So, you know, it's not a totally alien idea here in the United States. 
but it did. I think they're few and far between. I, I also wanted to uh, ask you: Wouldn't yes uh, a federal judge and the Supreme Court find unconstitutional if Arizona actually passes a law that says elected officials can overturn an election? A free and honest and open election. You would think. You would think. I mean, we're getting into really technical stuff here, and I'm I'm looking for the. Uh, uh, let's see. It would be an Article Two. And uh, yeah, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives. Um, uh, and that's basically it. But no senator or representative can be an elector. So, um, you know, if they're electing essentially partisan electors, which is how it's kind of evolved over time, then arguably, I mean, you know, this is the argument that was made in Bush v. Gore. Uh, it, it wasn't the essence of that decision, but it, it was made. Was that, and, and it's certainly the argument that Republicans are making right now that Donald Trump was making, that was being made on behalf of Donald Trump in, in multiple states, got shot down again by judges, was that states get to decide who their electors, you know, which electors they send. And of course, the electors are already partisanly bound to individual persons. So, um, but you know, this, this will be a test of how extreme the right wing on the Supreme Court is. So, you know, we, we, we shall see. James, thanks for the call. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.